Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Chief Investment Officer for EFG. So today we have our esteemed colleagues in the macro team, Sam, Paul, Daniel, Joaquin, uh, Stefan and Gianluigi. They'll be taking us through the uh, Insight uh, podcast. And just a reminder, the uh, Insight, which is our quarterly market review, uh, is available on the EFG website. You can download it. And of course, if you're listening on uh, Spotify, Apple, uh, Google, etc., uh, you can follow with the document. So um, again, thank you very much uh, for listening. So uh, we start on the front page of the Insight, which is a nice skiing one. Uh, certainly, I'm sure our Swiss colleagues would love that one as a soft uh, as a soft landing. Um, so maybe, um, um, Stefan, let's start with you. Um, and I guess the critical component to this soft landing is uh, is inflation and the retreat of inflation. Indeed, and I think as, as figure one shows there, inflation is coming down very quickly and uh, we are now back uh, around 2% in many, in many countries. Now, it is important to understand that inflation in, uh, in chart one is annualized inflation over six months. Um, normally, we talk about inflation over 12 months, and that's best thought of as an average inflation rate over the past year. So if inflation was very high eight months ago or 10 months ago or something, current inflation rates will look high, even if prices are not rising very rapidly now. So you can sort of deal with that problem by computing inflation over a shorter period of time, as is done here. And then you get quite a different picture, I think. So, indeed, I think inflation is, is coming in for a nice landing around 2%. Now, moving then on to the longer term, and I guess the differences between, uh, you know, GDP growth uh, in the advanced and emerging market uh, economies, one of the sort of things that certainly when, um, and I'm here, I'm looking at Paul, but one of the things I'm, quite interested in is how uh, the emerging markets have uh, been quite good at sort of tackling inflation obviously started their interest rate cycles a lot earlier than uh, the americans or or even uh, the uk or the ecb um uh, you know how's that helping in terms of transitioning to to better economic growth outcome well i think it it clearly has worked i mean you know many people would say you've got to get inflation under control and then growth will follow some are sceptical about that, but it certainly seems to have worked in Latin America. And the chart we've got as figure two shows actually growth expectations in both the advanced and the emerging economies sort of moving up from around the middle of last year. The sad thing, or the sort of slightly concerning thing, is that in that chart and in chart three, we've got potential growth only around about one, one and a half percent in a lot of the major advanced economies. And that is a problem looking further ahead. The good aspect of it is that if these longer-term projections, which are based on demographics and productivity, are correct, um, then India and Indonesia come along as very, very strong economies over the course of the next 10 to 15 years. In a sense, sort of leaving China a bit behind because it has its problems, Japanese-style problems, of a shrinking and an aging population. You don't have that in India and Indonesia. And um, just a quick word on productivity. Um, I think it's one of our themes for uh, 2024. Um, thoughts on productivity? Um, you know, it's always very difficult to measure and always, you know, um, we kind of noted in our um, um, sort of predictions 
that um, that 2024 was going to be um, uh, one for productivity, and so far so good. So far so good. The U- U.S. numbers are looking very good. Uh, you know, the third quarter data, and so people think, oh well, maybe the productivity miracle is finally coming through. Most of the estimates on the effect of generative AI don't su- suggest anything like a doubling of productivity. They, you know, half a percent improvement or something like that uh, uh, in in the U.S. economy. Um, but one big thing that we do talk about later on in this document is how some countries are really doing very, very badly indeed. UK productivity trend is, is not good. Um, and then if you're thinking about emerging markets, where does their productivity come from? Well, you, you put it politely, sort of technology transfer using other people's ideas, becoming more productive in their means of operation and running their economies. I get a little bit concerned about that because in this world which is becoming more uh, insular, more self-reliant and so on, then that technology transfer might not happen as easily. But I've always been really taken with the idea of frugal innovation in emerging economies, which we do mention in the in the overview document here. You can actually innovate at low cost and with relatively sort of low technology in a lot of areas. Medical sort of innovations in particular are important in uh, many Asian countries. So, yeah, you can do it. I guess the other sort of key is the uh, uh, net zero uh, development. Obviously, we'll talk about interest rates, which is, I guess, a key driver to that net zero capex that's needed. Um, but we're just horribly behind. We're horribly behind. So, I mean, my thinking on that was really conditioned by the IMF meetings in Marrakesh, which I went to at the end of last year. It's a really interesting sort of point. Everyone's saying you need about $4 trillion a year uh, for 25 or 30 years. So call it $120 trillion, $130 trillion for the green infrastructure. And... Two views on this. One, you could easily afford it by just removing fuel subsidies. They're running at about seven or eight trillion a year. Uh, but most of those subsidies are in emerging markets. And if you say, as the IMF does, look, the answer here is quite straightforward. Uh, there's lots of low-hanging fruit. Please don't subsidise fuel and bread and so on to the extent you do. And, you know, it'll finance itself. But then when... Finance ministers in emerging economies are told that. They say, well, we just simply can't do it. There'll be riots on the streets. You know, it's, it's almost impossible. But I quite like Mark Carney's answer that he gave to this at uh, the Marrakesh meeting. He said, um, uh, so $120 trillion? Well, uh, I run the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, GFANS. And if you take the assets of all of the companies in GFANS, it's a... It's 120 trillion. So what's the problem? We can easily finance it by mobilizing the sort of private sector resources. It's not easy, but there is money accumulated that can be used to do that. I guess if you're going to get private sector, you've got to, you've got to get this cost there and uh, low, and, and that's financing costs is a big chunk of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you're going to have a, a big impact. Now, moving then on to financing cost, I'm going to f- flip back to Stefan and uh, the... Uh, interesting discussions we segue slowly into the US uh, review is longer term interest rates and um, and uh, real interest rates and our star. 
Yes, um, these are going to be. Uh, this is already a very, uh, very interesting and and, and hotly debated uh, question. It's it's uh, there are several factors driving up our star and several factors driving it down. So it's it's difficult to to know exactly where we are heading. This chart six here shows uh, 10-year uh, inflation, the yield on 10-year tips, uh, inflation-protected securities issued by the US government, and they have been uh, rising sharply here from um, minus 1% at the end of 2021 and early 2022 to something up to 2% a little while ago, and now back down to something like 1.5%. You can compare that to what uh, members of the Federal Open Market Committee think um, the real interest rate will be in the long run. Um, as, as you know, the members of the FOMC, they make a guess about what what short-term interest rate they will set sort of in the longer run once the business cycle is back to neutral. And they have an inflation target, and they think inflation, of course, will be a back-to-target in the longer run. And if you do that, you get, you get something like a neutral or, or yeah, a new neutral real interest rate of um, of uh, of half a percent, which is quite some distance south of where tips yields are. One has to have in mind here that these are slightly different animals because the tips yields do include a term premium, and uh, the this orange line there, which is the uh, um, real uh, longer term interest rates of uh, that FOMC members believe in, uh, does not. Uh, so that could be uh, that could be one factor, and of course, uh, large-scale government borrowing and the fact that central banks no longer buy bonds to the same extent that they did in the past uh, suggests that the term premium has has risen perhaps sharply. So per- perhaps that's part of what goes on. Uh, what goes on here? I guess implicit within that term premium uh, are also many many things uh, encapsulated, not least deficits and. Um, uh, I guess long-term inflationary expectations uh, and politics and pretty much everything else you can throw into the mix. Uh, but certainly um, uh, we had it sort of unusually low over the last you know, 10 or 15 years. And uh, you know, certainly I think there's a view, certainly our view is that that started to uh, steepen up. So, so moving then on to uh, page five of the document and we go into the specific regions um and um and i guess we start with maybe daniel on the on the two parts of of inflation the goods price inflation which i think suspect has been or has been actually pretty well behaved uh and the services side is probably now going to start to have an impact yeah i think um in terms of two two elements the goods price inflation appears to be well under control and that's obviously very reassuring and something that i'm sure is feeding through into the fed's slightly more dovish rhetoric the service side there's you know there's two things that are going on here one is that a large part of services is related to housing and um we know that the housing components of inflation as it's measured they lag some of the um the more commercially available indicators of the housing market. So uh, indicators of housing inflation expected to come down over the next few months. And that's almost baked into the pies. Nothing is ever certain, but it's it's pretty much in there. The other element, which is services X housing, that's obviously closely related to the labor market and the fact that in this post-COVID world, what we've seen is um, a very sharp increase in the demand for services and an associated uh, increase in wages for those workers. So that key element is really, you know, wage inflation within the service sector. 
Now, um, I, I guess the um, well, one of the critical components to that labour is obviously labour hoarding, um, and that's really a throwback to um, sort of the post-pandemic period where it was just impossible to get anybody to get back to work. Um, do you think that has a kind of meaningful impact, certainly in the short term, um, or, or do you think uh, that particular point is just being overplayed? No, I think it clearly does have a meaningful impact. I think uh, in this post-COVID world, again, we've seen such sharp increase in demand for um, service sector workers that even now, even though we've seen some sort of movement back towards a better balance from the labour market, we're still seeing an excess of job vacancies over available labour. So I think that is still going on. Um, obviously, you know, the distortions through COVID are pretty large, so it's not surprising that it perhaps will take a few years for that to wash through the system. So, you know, I think that's something that we should expect to see more of. So then moving then on to how inflation rates, labour shortages, and then uh, have an impact on that risk premium and then obviously yield curve. Obviously, Dan, you've done quite a bit of work on this uh, particular point of view. Um, you know, how are you thinking about it? It's a very interesting dynamic because we know that headline inflation is likely to come down quite sharply over the coming months, as Stefan and Paul alluded to. And in response to this, much softer goods inflation and much softer housing market. We know also that we've got this sort of sticky element, which is services, ex-housing, closely related to the wage sector. And remember, the Fed's got this dual mandate, which is one element is inflation and the other element is labour market. So labour markets stay tight, but inflation comes under you know much closer to target then there's a question mark over how the fed behaves the market clearly thinks that the fed is going to lean much towards the inflation element and cut rates into that softer environment i think that's reasonable because if we were to see two percent inflation return then with rates at five and a half percent that would be a very high short-term real interest rate Um, and i think you know we certainly share that view so i think it's reasonable to expect short rates to settle perhaps at around about three and a half percent over say the next uh, two years very interesting certainly that's probably less dovish than uh, many of the market participants at the moment and clearly the federal reserve we saw a little bit earlier um and you know uh, maybe that is temporary but uh, certainly is something that is uh, uh particularly interesting for the shape of the yield curve and certainly noticing that the uh, curve has certainly started to um um uh, flatten after being heavily inverted on its way to um, to steepening. Um, good, let's go on then on to the UK um, and uh, uh, obviously as Paul alluded to a little bit earlier, a lot more productivity weakness uh, in the UK. Um, so Joaquin, your, your thoughts on uh, on that and, and how that plays out? Yeah, that's, that's right. I think uh, the, the weakness in, in productivity is a, is a trend that we have observed across uh, different countries um, and it's been very evident in the, in the developed world. So in the case of the UK, if you just look at productivity on the 15 years uh, previous to the, to the global financial crisis, um, productivity numbers were growing just under 2% per annum uh, with population growing around, uh, around 1% uh, and this you know, generating uh, a GDP growth of approximately 3% uh, per year. Um, but since then, we've seen uh, a deceleration in productivity numbers. Uh, in the UK, it's been pretty obvious, declining to 
uh, just around 0.3% uh, per annum. Um, and there's there's different explanations. I think this is one of the the, the causes that that GDP growth has accelerated in the UK and it's expected to to weaken further. Uh, but I think another point that um, that has affected this recently has been, of course, apart from from the pandemic and, and the obvious reasons there, uh, Brexit in the UK has been uh, also um, has has hampered uh, growth with reducing the number of population coming into the UK, reducing the attractiveness of the UK for uh, investment, particularly in the private sector, given some of the rising political uncertainty there and the uh, ins and outs of the of the different Brexit agreements. So that has all sort of crowded out part of the investment also um, hindering uh, developments and, 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 and new technologies. So I think that's been an, an, another cause. And the, the final point here, I think it's, a, uh, it's on, the, on the size of the, the government sector, which um, has also uh, been a bit of a, of a headwind for, for, for growth, uh, particularly on um, the, the level of government spending and the, the tax burden, which uh, as a share of nominal GDP is just over 40%, uh, rising for something around 30% in the, in the mid-90s. And this is still expected to continue uh, rising in the, in the coming year. So therefore, uh, to, that is expected also to, to, to be a hindrance to, uh, to the UK. Yeah, I was going to say, ironically, the Conservative government has been the complete opposite, <laughs> more more <but> Corbyn-esque <laughs> yeah, exactly. in terms of their actual policy rather than uh, uh, being traditionally conservative. Yeah, and, and then it remains to be seen what will happen in the new general election. Uh, any of the two uh, parties that are, that are likely to, uh, to gain significant representation uh, how they're going to tackle this issue with uh, with, with low productivity and, and, and low growth and high levels of taxes. Who is going to be the the one that uh, ends up cutting taxes? It's, can we see Labour cutting taxes in the, in the future? Well, remains to be seen. No, exactly. I suspect that the um, election is going to be drawn upon those lines. You can see it already building with the uh, tax or the national insurance cut we're going to be seeing shortly. Um, and obviously... Um, you can see that Conservatives need to make the case <laughs> that they are a low-tax party, uh, but certainly the history does not suggest that is the case. Um, and so um, uh, that's probably going to be, I, I think it's virtual certainty that Conservatives will lose. Um, the question is then, you know, how big? And I think that how big is going to be driven by um, tax, I suspect. Uh, also, they'll try to draw the lines around that Certainly, that will be um, you know very uh, you know very interesting. Um, so then, moving then on to Europe um, and uh, the ECB, uh, and um, um, you know, bringing Stefan back uh, on uh, on your thoughts there, falling off a cliff looks like on on chart sixteen. Yeah, inflation is coming down very rapidly. Again, chart 16 shows inflation annualized but measured over six months. And uh, inflation in December, both headline and core, were 2.1%, which we should compare with the uh, ECB's 2% inflation objective. So inflation is back to is back to target. The euro area is weak, in particular Germany. The German economy is very weak. So uh, this doesn't uh, this doesn't look good. Uh, uh, I think we are all hoping that the ECB will start cutting interest rates. Uh, the risk is that they will 
focus on headline inflation and and, and wait, uh, sorry, headline inflation over 12 months, I should say, and core inflation over 12 months and say, well, they are, they are still too high and then wait six months with taking action. Um, if they do, uh, the euro area could really experience problems here later in the year. I guess for Germany, I guess there's two things is cheap gas, obviously is no longer there, which certainly being the big powerhouse to manufacturing uh, yeah, input costs, uh, you know, over the last, well, whatever, 20 or 30 years. Uh, and Germany suddenly has had a, a big, yeah, big benefit, um, you know, from that. And I guess the other big problem is no one really talks about is that they're still built around the combustion engine. <laughs> Obviously, Germany um, in particular has, uh, you know, still quite a big reliance on uh, on autos and, and the technology that feeds it. Um, indeed, indeed. And I think this, uh, and I guess they've been a bit slow to uh, to sort of turn in the direction of, of electric vehicles. Of course, in the case of Germany, there's a, a third factor, which is, is I think, a, playing a role now, and that is that the economy is extremely export-oriented, focusing particularly on, on, on cars to mainland China, mainland China, as you know, so this combination of being so um, uh, dependent on relatively inexpensive energy, being so uh, dependent on the large car sector, and being uh, or seeing or having China as a major export market, this sort of combination of uh, uh, of factors, I think, is 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 a bit of a or does generate some headways or headwinds now for the for the German economy. Mm. Unfortunately, I can't see anything that. Turns that around, just noting that BYD, the Chinese electric car manufacturer, is now the largest car uh, electric car manufacturer in the world, is just outstripping Tesla, um, and I suspect that keeps on going going on. And the other thing that's reminded me is uh, just recently, um, I'm not sure whether it will stay by the time this podcast goes out, but Microsoft now exceeds Apple as the largest company. Uh, and the world is about software, not about hardware. And um, and uh, you know uh, Germany still has a rather large deficiency in in, in software engineers and uh, people who 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 could do software and particularly software in autos and so on and so forth. So yeah, they they really have kind of fallen fallen behind in uh, in, in many sort of aspects of innovation that. Uh, Germany was always ahead of um, so uh, be interesting to see how that uh, turns around and you know we, we make a s- small passing comment about the German uh, government debt and um, you know, that that looks too optimistic <laughs> uh, moving then on to Switzerland so Gianluigi um, one of the the big um, elements um, for Switzerland has been the strength of the Swiss franc or recently in the my outlook presentations, I call it the mighty Swiss franc. Um, uh, and uh, certainly, as we can see, it's already having quite an impact on uh, business confidence and ultimately GDP growth. Uh, so my first question to you, is the SMB too tight? Uh, that's a very good question, Moz. Uh, it's uh, definitely uh, tight, uh, not as tight as the ECB, at least if you measure... Uh, monetary policy in terms of real rates, i.e. Uh, nominal rates uh, uh, minus current inflation. Uh, indeed, the SMB tightened policy much less than the ECB or the Fed did. Uh, nonetheless, that was enough to definitely 
contribute to the strength of the Swiss franc, which, by the way, was uh, something that we have long advocated for, uh, pointing to the strong fundamentals of the Swiss economy, including a low debt-to-GDP ratio, a low and stable inflation, with a target that is uh, kind of implicitly lower than its peers. Uh, the definition of price stability adopted by the SMB is inflation between 0 and 2%, and uh, at least before the great financial crisis and Lehman collapsed, it basically achieved inflation of about 1%, which is one percentage point less than the, the 2% target pursued by the ECB. And that, over time, uh, support, uh, as textbook economics would uh, suggest, uh, uh, currency strength, at least in nominal terms. Indeed, if you look at, this, at the Swiss franc in real terms, and particularly when compared on tradable goods prices, it is basically where it was 25 years ago, so it didn't appreciate that much. Given clearly the Swiss franc is having an impact that we show quite nicely on on um, on the chart on 21, what's your thoughts around how S&B are going to um, uh, move, particularly in the context of a very sl- well sluggish uh, and worsening European economy? Yes, th- this is an important point. Swiss economy is very closely linked to, to the euro and particularly Germany. So the difficulties in Germany reverberate uh, to, uh, the, to the Swiss economy quite, uh, quite directly. And that is probably another factor that uh, will lead uh, the SMB to uh, cut rates. Uh, the question mark, uh, as always, is uh, uh, will it do it uh, uh, before or after the ECB? Conventional wisdom is that the SMB normally follows the ECB, but the last couple of uh, um, uh, well, last couple of years have shown that uh, the SMB can also be quite uh, uh, independent, and at least in the market's eyes, surprisingly so. But uh, so it is quite likely that they will cut rates. Possibly March is a bit too early, but June uh, looks uh, quite uh, quite a likely timing for the first rate cut to be delivered by the Swiss National Bank. I guess that puts them on par with the ECB, I guess, in terms of their cycle. Um, and March probably seems too soon. Uh, but it would be interesting. I think it's, it's a, probably a live meeting um, to uh, to suddenly think about. So uh, one that we'll watch very carefully and uh, and watch the Swiss franc very carefully in that, uh, in that uh, environment. Thank you, um, Gianluigi. Uh, particularly interesting point uh, to discuss uh, as we move over the next uh, few months um so moving on to sam and and to talk about asia uh and um here we we um we have uh, i guess where the yen used to be called the mighty yen <laughs> has been the um the incredibly weak yen but um uh, certainly looks very undervalued on uh, on pvp estimates yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a really striking chart, and I think it's going to be a very important year for the yen. Um, certainly interesting to watch. So we finally have inflation back in Japan, um, and that's really been driven by goods inflation abroad, which has been imported into the country. But as we've spoken about, that's actually faded away. So inflation now in Japan is coming down, and core inflation, which is the key measure the Bank of Japan watches, is actually only just above its 2% objective now. So what it's really looking for going forward is it's looking at its services prices, which have been in an upward trend, and the Bank of Japan say that's due to higher labor costs. So they're looking at these spring wage negotiations as the key point to watch. 
But I think it's just an interesting point just to remember that the Bank of Japan actually already altered its yield curve control policy in October to call the 1% upper bound for the 10-year J- Japanese government bonds a reference rather than a strict limit. And if they did increase interest rates, I don't think it's likely to be much more than a 10 basis point move to 0%. We shouldn't be expecting the same magnitude of rate moves that we saw in the West. So I think really the key for the Japanese yen this year is actually the differential between Japanese rates and US rates. So I think actually the strength of the US economy and how much the Fed cuts by will be key for the Japanese yen. Yeah, I can note that uh, as of this morning, the Nikkei... um, um, we're, we're having this uh, podcast on the 15th of January, just for reference. But uh, the Nikkei is up something like 7.5% on a year-to-date basis. And you know, kind of my thoughts were that, given that inflation data, certainly in Japan, has kind of cooled a bit, that has obviously given people the excuse to go and buy more Japanese equities um, on that basis, that, that we're not going to see a big tightening anytime soon. I think it's quite interesting to kind of see whether... Once we get to the spring wage rounds, um, I guess March, April time, whether we'll start to see the market also start to incorporate that. But it could be after it's written, gone back to the 1989 high um, uh, by then, which is uh, still, you know, quite a significant sort of, um, I guess, 10, 10% away from where we are now. But it could get there very quickly. The other really important point uh, on this uh, on this page is the housing market, and uh, and um, we we contrast China and India uh, quite uh, specifically. Obviously, China has the big problems, but India looks particularly strong. Yeah, I mean, China's real estate sector is weak. There's no two ways about it. It does actually look like it's stabilising. There's tentative signs of that, but at low levels. So sales look like they're bottoming out, and prices for new home new homes are kind of you can see on the chart they're stabilizing but at a low level obviously the outlook's weaker for existing homes which we've called second-hand homes um on this chart that's chart 25 there and particularly in the non-tier one cities but then you bring in the demographic problems and the long-term outlook for chinese real estate sectors particularly bleak and on the flip side you have india's property market which looks really strong so prices are at the 2011 peak again um, but home loan payment to income ratio remains really subdued. So they're remaining affordable. And then banks are in a really strong state to actually be financing this as very low uh, non-performing loan ratio relative to history. And then you add in the de- demographic factor as well. So on the flip side, where China has a declining population, India's just overtaken it as the most populous country in the world. And it's on a really strong trend. It's still increasing. Certainly reflected in valuations, Indian valuations uh, continues to stay pretty expensive, uh, whereas Chinese uh, valuations now, certainly on our work, are uh, super, super cheap. Um, but, uh, you know, there's there for a reason. Um, so let's move on to Latin America uh, and uh, Brazil and interest rates in Brazil, uh, Joaquin. Yeah, exactly. So Brazil has made great progress um, in terms of their economic stability over the last few years. And uh, interest rates um, in, in Brazil have already started to, to come down. We've already seen the, the, the Central Bank of Brazil uh, cutting rates four times. Um, and more is uh, is expected uh, from, from their side, which definitely is going to be 
a positive for the um, uh, for companies in in in, in Brazil. Uh, Brazil has, has made great um, uh, progress in terms of tidying up some of its its finances over the years, particularly since since the mid nineties, um, and. We still expect uh, growth to, to decelerate in, in, in the country, uh, mostly due to weaker domestic demand and, and the reduced capacity of the government to uh, for further fiscal expansion. All of those concerns that, that Lula uh, would, would be much more uh, irresponsible on the fiscal side um, have, um, have been unfunded and actually the country has, has, has maintained a, a very solid line in terms of its uh, fiscal accounts. So, or with with that side uh, first, and then the the, the support from the um, uh, from the monetary easing, we would expect Brazil to to do well this year. Absolutely, I think uh, economic management in Brazil has certainly been uh, exceptional over the last sort of uh, I call it five five years or so. Um, they probably still don't get credit enough credit for it. I think real yields in Brazil are still one of the highest in the world, uh, so they're not necessarily getting the credit. Uh, for it, but uh, certainly so far so good. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's right. And uh, I think the important thing to to note here is that uh, different governments of different colors of different parties have have passed, and these uh, the countries managed to maintain a, a, a line, which is definitely a positive thing for the future, and and definitely attracts uh, um, attracts investors into the country. Yeah, and also in an environment where commodity prices have generally been weak. Um, uh, if you take the five-year period, um, so yeah, very very interesting. The um, um, surprisingly large number of questions uh, on my roadshows on Argentina, um, which has kind of surprised me. It's it's uh, it's one of those that seems to crop up quite a bit more recently, and obviously they're due to um, I, I guess Mier's very aggressive policy stance. Uh, maybe you want to cover that. Yeah, so I think Argentina continues to suffer the, the results of years of uh, poor political management. Um, I think that the new president, Millet, is, came as a, as a breath of fresh air first for, um, for, for, for people that were tired of the, the same political parties and the same names just, just rotating. So he won the election on a very radical platform of policy change, um, with some ideas that might be a bit more controversial, such as dollarization or, or even closing the central bank. Uh, but developments so far have been slow. Um, he has proposed a bill uh, that is currently in the discussion in Congress, which encompasses over 300 different measures to reduce spending, uh, provoke privatizations, make the public sector a bit more dynamic. Um, however, the problem is that he doesn't have enough votes in Congress to support this bill. Uh, and clearly, because of the, the amount of so many different various things that are included in this bill, then this makes it a bit more, uh, a bit slower, let's say, to, to pass through Congress. Everyone wants to take uh, a little piece of it. So uh, I think the progress will be slow. Um, there has been some liberalization in terms of the con currency controls, which have um, increased the... Um, uh, which is the, 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 the speed of the, the depreciation of the currency um, and the situation in Argentina will, will probably get worse before it gets uh, any better. Like inflation is expected to, to reach over 200%. Um, but at least it's a, it's a change in the narrative in Argentina. And I think 
private sector is starting to see that it could be the person that needs that doesn't have the capital, the political capital to lose um, in order to make some of the the, the much needed reforms. Uh, that is probably the the more positive case, the more positive scenario for Argentina. Um, uh, I think from our side, we remain a little bit more cautious on the prospects of him actually making. Uh, any any significant changes long term? Mm. No, exactly. I think uh, heeding caution is probably the right uh, strategy at this point in time, and uh, you know, avoid getting overexcited. Certainly, there seem to be a, many, a few people in the audiences uh, on, on my roadshows who are overexcited about it. But certainly, you know, one needs to be um, a little bit more sort of cautious. Uh, so we move on to the final section, um, which has also been one of our sort of twenty twenty four outlook themes is demographics is destiny um and uh you know i always sort of tread demographics very carefully because you know it is all about sort of death <laughs> and old age uh, but actually equally important is uh, is fertility and young age so maybe we can focus on 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 the young age bit paul uh <laughs> rather than the um fertility uh, in the young fertility I, in the young I, yeah. I, I like i'm like you mose i think you know we talk about fertility it sounds like some sort of biological experiment in a classroom and it, do, it makes you feel a bit queasy but no i mean the chart we've got is just for the world i mean because there's lots of detail between different regions for the world life expectancy has really gone up a lot you know just over 40 45 years in 1950 and now 70 odd and I was struck by, the, in the UK, the projections by the Office for National Statistics, a third of children born now will live to be 100. That is just amazing. You know, we are, there's a bit of a, a tweak in the sort of life expectancy numbers because of COVID, but generally the trend is for people to live sort of much longer. Um, so we've got more people around just because they're living a lot longer. Uh, because a lot fewer people, because birth rates, fertility rates have dropped. Um, the replacement rate, the number of lifetime children per woman, is just over two to account for infant mortality. Sorry, mentioned death again. Um, and the charts we've got for the major advanced economies, the G7, and for the BRICS economies, show, with the one tiny exception of South Africa, fertility rates dropping below that replacement rate so populations over time sort of will shrink and i think you know one of the big issues i think related to that is do you try and encourage people to have more children how might you do that we start off by talking about in you know, the contrast between malthus and adam smith I, I got my old economics textbooks out malthus thought you know too many people it would all be death destruction starvation wars pestilence and it would just be a terrible sort of thing Adam Smith thought, wow, having more children and lots of young people around is great for an economy because it's a new element of dynamism and so on. And actually, we're still, we're still torn between those sort of two ideas now. I mean, planetary boundaries, having too many people that you know, the Earth can't sustain, and wanting more children in lots of economies. I, I, I knew it was a feature in Italy, so I looked at what had been said, and Giorgio Maloney and the Pope together are saying that Italians need to have more children. Uh, China's eased its sort of restrictions on the one child and two child and three child policies and so on. But I just wonder what you can do. Mose, I often think about something you've mentioned in the past, and it is all to do with housing affordability. I think that's become a theme again. You know, if people can't afford to move out of the parental home and 
married partnerships, have children and so on, simply for financial reasons, uh, that's a problem. So we could try and encourage that. But the, the, the attempts to encourage it, I think in many countries, are just not all that successful. So maybe it's... I, I, you know, maybe it's just sort of like passive acceptance of something you can't really change very easily by government policy. There are some bright spots. I mean, I heard a presentation recently by the Canadian finance minister um, providing sort of better and cheaper childcare, younger years sort of childcare. Women can return to the workforce. It can be almost self-financing and you get more people, you get the population increase that you need. Uh, Scandinavian countries are generally in a better position than than others, so it it can work. But I think fundamentally, in a lot of these economies, there's not an awful lot you can do about it. Uh, and China being the sort of greatest example, uh, as Sam just mentioned, and that's a long term structural problem for uh, the housing sector. Mm, no, exactly. I think uh, housing certainly in sort of if you sort of think about China and and thinking about Japan, uh, you know, anything outside of Tokyo is worth nothing. Uh, it's, it's that depopulation trend. I mean, the rural, distant rural areas, there's often nobody there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, absolutely. So, yeah, you can certainly see eventually in China that will exactly where it will sort of uh, um, you know, head towards. But it could be the bigger cities just get bigger and bigger and... You know, it's kind of where all the investment then goes into. I think that, yeah, if that that's the Japan model, and I think it's a model in many other countries as well, yeah. No, absolutely. But, uh, you know, um, I think the, the Canada situation, Sweden and other Scandinavian uh, uh, countries have, you know, just made it very affordable for for childcare. And, uh, and uh, I guess housing and tax allowances around that is probably the, the best way to handle it. Um, and then... Keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Or, or, or you could do, take an extreme measure and ban all birth control. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah. well, the new Labour government in the UK will be looking for some new set of policies, so you never know. You, <laughs> Mose, you could be an advisor with... <laughs> Yeah, but I don't think that would go very. Uh, I don't think that would go down very popular with uh, with banning birth control. Anyway, <laughs> too much of a political hot potato as uh, as uh, as Trump has seen more recently. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, well, Paul, thank you very much for that. I, I think that's uh, you know again uh, very interesting. Of the so some of these themes are very long term themes, and we always try to uh, put them into the special focus because it certainly makes a makes a. a, a quite a big difference so gentlemen thank you very much for uh, another very successful insight um, uh, review and and podcast and uh, we uh, haven't covered the US election I think it's a little bit too soon and certainly seems like Trump is going to be the Republican uh, appointee Um, but uh, no doubt over the coming podcasts we'll be sort of diving in to the US election Uh, it's probably the most important like a geopolitical event for the year I suspect uh, as we move forward uh, so thank you very much and of course um, thank you for listening if you have any questions please do reach out and uh, we'll speak to you again next time 